0: Please stand and join in the call to worship. We have been raised with Christ. Let us therefore set our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. As we come together as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, let us clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We will forgive even as the Lord has forgiven each of us. O God, as raised people, raised with Christ, we call you. As desperate people needing compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, we call you. As forgiven people who need to forgive, we call you. Hear our worship, O God. Make it acceptable before you through Christ Jesus.
1: Before you're seated, I want to invite you to share a word of peace, a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. Welcome all of you to uh, our worship service today, especially welcome those of you who are guests with us this morning. I know there are some who are here who will be participating in the conference on Islam this week that the college is hosting and uh, want to be in prayer about that conference. I know that we all know that food is vital to our lives, and I suspect that for most of us, um, food is quite plentiful to us. But we also hopefully know that there are people right around us and in extending areas who, for whom that is not the case. And that's one of the reasons we created our food pantry, to assist people who are struggling to put food on the table. And we have helped many, many people over the years with our food pantry. Just this past month, we helped 67 people. And that's a fairly typical month, I would say, of helping folks. As you can see in the pictures, our shelves are bare, and we, we could really use your help. Uh, the need is ongoing. We appreciate all that everyone does in November when we uh, have our food drive, and it, it's so helpful. But um, that was seven months ago, and so now the need is, is still present with us. So if you have the ability to donate some food or if you'd like to give a gift to, with which we can use to buy food, it will be greatly appreciated. You can drop off any food uh, at the church office, and uh, we'll make sure that it gets put into the pantry. If you'd like to uh, write a check for this specific part of the program, you can just make sure you put in the memo, food pantry. And uh, we, uh, we it's a great extension of our congregation to people who are in need, so we appreciate your support and help for this. Please note that next Sunday begins summer Sabbath, and this means we'll have one worship service on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock. Uh, Next Sunday, Pastor Cindy will be preaching from 1 Kings 19. Uh, Wednesday of this week, Pastor Mike is hosting a small group leaders meeting uh, for those who have been leaders and hosts and also for anyone who might be interested in being a leader or host. And you see the information in the bulletin about that meeting. There are a number of prayer concerns, as always, and we want to continue to pray about the needs that are connected to us as well as those beyond us. I do want to mention that uh, Randy Ellis's father died yesterday after a lengthy illness, uh, and we want to pray for the Ellis' as uh, arrangements are pending at the moment, but to pray for this family in their time of grief and loss. I invite you to take your bulletins and turn with me to the prayer of confession. Let us pray together. Merciful God, we confess to you now that we have sinned. We confess the sins that no one knows and the sins that everyone knows. We confess the sins that are a burden to us and the sins that do not bother us because we have grown used to them. We confess our sins as a church, hesitating to love one another, to forgive one another to give ourselves to one another like Christ. Father, forgive us. Send the Holy Spirit to us that he may give us power to live as by your mercy you have called us to live. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
0: Scripture passages from 1 Chronicles, chapter 1, verses 43 to 51. Hear the word of the Lord. These were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. Bela, son of Beor, whose city was named Dinhabah. When Bela died, Jobab, son of Zerah from Basra, succeeded him as king. When Jobab died... Husham from the land of the Temanites, succeeded him as king. When Husham died, Hadad son of Badad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, succeeded him as king. His city was named Avath. When Hadad died, Samlah from Masrachah succeeded him as king. When Samlah died, Shaul from Rehoboth on the river succeeded him as king. When Shaul died, Baal-Hanan, son of Aqbor, succeeded him as king. When Baal-Hanan died, Hadad succeeded him as king. His city was named Pau, and his wife's name was Mehedabel, daughter of Matrit, the daughter of meh Hadad also died. The chiefs of Edom were Timnah, Alva, Jepheth, Aholamah, Elah, Pinah, Kenaz, Timah, Mibzar, Magdil, and Iran. These were the chiefs of Edom. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Invite the ushers to come forward as we stand to sing the glory of Hatri. Lord God, out of the riches with which you have blessed us, we return a share to you, expressing our thanksgiving, our desire for your will to be done in our church. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.
1: We have the opportunity to spend some time in prayer together and has been our practice for quite some time. If you would like to use the altar rail as your place of prayer about a need in your own life or the need of another's life or a burden you have about circumstance or situation in the world, I invite you to join me as we pray together. Father, we come today to proclaim you, the Lord God Almighty. We acknowledge and declare your great works in this world throughout all of time and space and and in our lives through every moment of our existence. We bless your name as the one and the only who reigns now and forevermore. Father, it's precisely because you are over all that we bring to you in trust and in confidence the concerns of our lives and our world. We ask that you will place your loving arms around those who grieve, Impart your healing power upon all who struggle with difficulties of body, mind, and spirit. Give assurance of your forgiveness as we confess and repent of our sin. Restore relationships that have been broken and set us free From the condemnation of the enemy, as you raise us all to new life in the risen Christ. Father, in this moment of silence together, hear our prayers. Father, we also pray for the needs of our world. We see the events unfolding in Syria and our hearts are broken and disturbed by what we see. Bring peace to this land and this people that you dearly love. We pray the same in other places where war and violence or famine and disease run rampant. We pray, Father, for the work of your people in the world. And we think especially this week of the conference meeting here to to discuss the movement of Christianity among Muslim people. We ask, Father, that you will bless this conference Let it bring a sense of unity and a sense of purpose. And out of this conference, let your word go forth in power and in grace. Let your people be encouraged to be a witness for you in every country of this world. Father, on this day when we honor our earthly fathers, we want to give you thanks for the gift of family. We know that, that our fathers are not perfect just as we're not perfect. And for some of us, this has been and perhaps continues to be a source of pain and struggle. Maybe today is a day of yearning and aching for Father. And for others, the word Father brings images of love and joy and security. Lord, in either case, fill us with a sense of your presence in our family and help us more than anything to see you, our always loving Heavenly Father. And for those of us who are fathers, help us to live so close to you that we continually reveal you to our children in every way that we possibly can. Father, we offer our prayer in the name of and through the power of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who teaches us the model for prayer in which we now join together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
0: The New Testament reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 to 22. Hear the word of the Lord. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless— you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Father, let us indeed serve you with delight. As we continue in worship, let us hear you. Give us ears to not just hear, but to understand. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Like to talk about death. I don't really like to think that much about death. Death brings up thoughts of pain and heartbreak and agony and grief and loss and loneliness. Everything that I want to avoid. I remember one of the the earliest memories that I have as a child was I was four years old and I can still visualize sitting with my family in front of our little black and white television watching John Kennedy's funeral procession through the streets of our nation's capital. I was four years old but that memory is emblazoned in my mind. I remember a couple of years later... When a state trooper who lived in our little southern Indiana town was killed while investigating a um, domestic dispute. And I I just remember the feeling of sadness that came over that community at this man's death. And I remember at the age of 16, standing at the casket of my great-grandfather, who I knew very well, with my grandmother... And for the first time in my life, experiencing a death of someone that I loved and was close to. I would suspect that my experiences probably with death are probably nothing compared to many of your experiences. I know many of your experiences with death. But I've lived long enough and, and, I, and I've dealt with death long enough to know that it's something that comes to us. It's a part of our lives. I think that was in the back of my mind when I came upon First Chronicles a few months ago. I've been reading through the Bible again this year, and, and let me tell you, I want to encourage you to, to make an attempt to do that because you read passages that you would probably never read and when you come to a passage like we read this morning from 1 Chronicles you sort of scratch your head and say why is that here it's one of those pa- I was thinking as we you know as we uh, responded to the reading uh, this is the word of the lord and we may be thinking really thanks be to god for that passage <laughs> you sort of you wonder about it right but it, but it's tr- but it is there because god has a purpose for us and and I was wondering, I wasn't sure who was going to be reading scripture today, but you know, I, I felt sorry for them running through all of those names and Paul did it so eloquently. Well you look at a passage like that, and these this is a passage that describes for us, talks to us about the kings of Edom. And and they are they these are powerful kings. When the beginning of, of um, verse 43 says, they these are the kings who rule before Israel. Had a king. These are kings who had a lot of power. Because once Israel gained and picked up power, the, the nation of Eden lessened significantly. And so these are, these are men who garner respect. These are men who shape people's lives and nations. These are names with, of men with wealth and power and prestige. They are famous. They are the most famous people in, in the land. In, in their kingdom in that day. They are the Julius Caesar of their day. They're the George Washington of their day. The, the Winston Churchill of their day. Everyone honors them. Respects them. You bow down before them. These are the people who have it all. Riches. Fame. Power. And what does it tell us about them? They reigned. And they died. Reigned. They reigned. And he died. He reigned and he died. He reigned and he died. He reigned and he died. And when you get to the last one, he says, oh, and by the way, Hadad, he also died. Just in case you were wondering that he was going to be like the rest of them. They all die. And we're reminded that death is a universal reality for every one of us. Every one of us, whether we like it or not, is going to face death. We face death when people we love die. And someday we're all going to face our own death. It's a universal reality. The writer of Hebrews says that it is every person is destined to die. The psalmist says no one can escape the terror of the grave. We are all going to die. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. If you're famous or invisible. It doesn't matter if you're educated or illiterate. If you're powerful or weak. We all die. Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims... Atheists, agnostics, Wiccans, we all die. Americans, Canadians, (coughs) Palestinians, Germans, Argentinians, Australians, Chinese, we all die. And the question before us is not, are we going to die? The question is... What's our response? How do we live in, in, in the face of the universal reality of death? I have found, as you, as I, as I talk to folks, and as I think about my own life, that some of us have a tendency to to respond to the reality of death with denial, and our, and our culture and our society is continually Encouraging denial We are we are regularly We find new ways to sanitize The reality of death We do that with our language Most people When they talk about someone dying Use some sort of euphemism To describe it And it just feels a little nicer It also may be just a little bit less real I was talking with Herb Williams this week, the funeral director in Fillmore, about this very thing. And he said to me, sometimes he has people who come to him, and and as they sit down to talk about preparing the funeral of of a loved one, their comment is, we just want what is quickest and easiest. He said, you know, it's obvious that they just want to to be done with this and and to get through it as, as quickly as they can, and then forget about it. And there's something in that, maybe subconsciously, but something in that of wanting to avoid the, re- the truth and the reality of death. He was telling me that a lot of people, as they, as they get older, come in to see him and make prearrangements about death, which I think is a great thing to do. I think it takes a lot of weight off of family members at the point of death. He said sometimes people will say to him, they'll come in, sit down and say, now, if I should die, here's what I want you to do. He said, I know what they mean. They mean when I die. But it doesn't come out that way. Some people come in and say, if I should die as though it might or might not happen. It's just a subtle, subconscious means of denying the truth. And you know, it's, it's an issue that we've been wrestling with as human beings all of our existence. You go back to the second chapter of Genesis... And God says to Adam and Eve, you can eat from any tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, you will die. We come to chapter 3 and Satan appears to Adam and Eve and and, uh, he says, so God says you can't eat of the trees of the garden? No, no, no. We can eat of all the trees we want except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if we eat of that tree, we're going to die. And what is Satan's response? you're not going to die. And from that moment on, he has been continually tempting us to believe, you're not going to die. And to live our lives in such a way as, to live our lives in denial about the reality of our deaths. I also find that sometimes our response to the reality of death is fear. Fear. That we are so afraid of dying that it, it paralyzes us in living. We, we, we have created so many, so many ways of protecting ourselves in this world. And, and many of them are very good. And, and our government is, is very good at being concerned about our safety. And, and we should applaud that. I worked in an emergency room for three years. So I understand the consequences of people who don't pay attention to safety. But I also wonder sometimes if, we, if some of the decisions that are made are simply a response of fear. One person has one issue, and now we have a law that protects ever, that ever happening again. And, and I, again, we, we need the protections, and we need the safety measures, and those are important. But, but sometimes it seems to me as though it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction Because we're afraid of death. And people who are afraid of death don't really live. When we're afraid of death, we're we're paralyzed to live. We become incapacitated to really give ourselves to life. And again, this has been going on for a long time. David writes in Psalm 55 about the terrors of death that assailed him. He understands what it is to be afraid about death. And we know that. And, and of course, there, there, there are good things that we ought to be doing to protect ourselves. You know, caution is one thing. Being paralyzed is something else. We ought to be wise about how we live. But we also ought to be willing to take some risks. And I wonder sometimes if the reason we don't risk more for God is because we are so enveloped in fear. Maybe it's fear that prevents us from from going on a missions trip. Or maybe it's fear that prevents us from, from engaging in a work in an inner city area that we feel would be really dangerous. Maybe it's fear that keeps us from just moving forward with the things that God is asking us to do. Because we're afraid of where it might lead us. And the unknown frightens us. And so we just stay back, afraid. About 10 years ago, I read an article about Saddam Hussein. This, this was a year before he was captured, about six months before the invasion of Iraq. He was still operating fully as the president of the nation. And the story was titled, Saddam Rules by Fear and Lives Fearfully. And it was a story that, was, that information gleaned from some of his closest uh, people who told about what his life was like, how he had, he had his food prepared in 10 different uh, places so that no one knew exactly which meal he was going to eat, so they couldn't poison him. And anyone who came to visit him was searched thoroughly and had to wash their hands in three different kinds of liquids to make sure they were clean. And everything he touched was tested before he touched it. Linens, toiletries, tableware. Before he touched anything, it was extensively tested. He had, uh, he, through plastic surgery, he had body doubles made of himself. So the people knew, exact, knew never knew exactly where he was. He lived in these elaborate palaces, but instead of, of living in them, he lived in bunkers underneath them. And he never slept in the same place more than one night in a row He never slept more than two or three hours a night, and he was always armed. And he was just engrossed in fear. This is a man who has had great power and great wealth, but he was so fearful. And I doubt if any of us are going to go to that kind of extreme. But I wonder if sometimes fear doesn't keep us from being the people God wants us to be. And to take the, the kinds of risks that God is leading us to take. And to live our lives in the fullness of what God wants for us. Of course, the opposite of that can also be true. For some people, the reality of death leads them to live in self-indulgence. Everything is about me. And, you know, it's the thing of, if I'm going to die anyway, I'm going to do everything I can to live every thrill every exhilaration, every moment that I possibly can. And we and we live... But but the thing is, it's like the beer commercial used to tell us you know, years ago. You only go around it once in life, so go for the gusto. And that usually means, I want to get what I want to get. And I'm going to live my life about me. I want to get what I want, and when I want it, and how I want it. And, it is, and if it hurts other people, well... That's too bad because life is about me because I only go around once anyway. And everything focuses on us. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12 about the rich man who has such a great harvest that he can't put it all into his barns. And so instead of sharing it with people and giving it to people who have less, he says, I'll build bigger barns so I can hoard it and keep it for myself the end of the parable, God says of him, you fool. It's so easy for us to get wrapped up in ourselves. There's a lot of people who, after the movie came out, are making bucket lists. You know, the things you want to do before you die. There's some good to that. I think, I think to have some, some purpose to life, the things you want to accomplish... I think it's good but a lot of the bucket lists that I come across are pretty self-indulgent you know, I want to do what I want to do I want to make sure I experience this I want to make sure I get this I want to make sure I do that we're all wrapped up in what we want and life becomes about the next high you know, to have the next thing the next <laughs> possession the next toy everything becomes about me and instead of Using things and loving people, we love things and use people. And we allow the, the, the reality of death to just drive us further and further inside of ourselves. And we see this even in the church. You know, it. I'll, I'll be a part of the church as long as it's about me. As long as you do what I want you to do, as long as everything focuses on me, then we're good. And God calls us to so much more than that. So what do we do? If those are the, the, the wrong responses, what's the right one? I think as I've been pondering this and trying to boil it down, it seems to me that the most appropriate response to the reality of death is holiness Jesus says in Matthew 22 when asked what's the greatest commandment he says love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbors yourself when John Wesley was asked what do you mean by holy living, he took people back to this verse and said this is what I mean that God is first Their relationship with God is the focal point of our lives and out of that then we love people as we love ourselves I don't know how many of you are fans of country music but a few years ago Tim McGraw recorded a song that he titled Live Like You Were Dying some of you may have heard it and he wrote this song about a conversation, an imaginary conversation with his father, Tug McGraw who was a former professional baseball player and who had been diagnosed with cancer and in the beginning of the song, it's really a story, and in the beginning of the song, he says, uh, you know, this man tells him, his father tells him, he was in his early 40s, and, and he discovered that they'd been diagnosed with cancer. And McGraw says to him, I asked him, you know, when this really became real, that this might be the end, what'd you do? And he says, well, I went skydiving, and I climbed the Rocky Mountains, and I did a little bull riding. And he says, and then, but I also love deeper. And I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness that I'd been denying. That's a beautiful image and it's a wonderful picture of what can happen when you're gripped by the reality of death. That it has a bearing on how you relate to people and treat people. And he goes on to talk about that I wasn't the father I should have been and, and this helped me to be that. And it, it's got a great message to the soul. But the truth is, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough to, to be nice to people. It's not enough to do good things. God is calling us to be righteous people. God is calling us to be people who are transformed by His Spirit. And out of that transformation, to then become people in this world who love and, and have compassion and who sacrifice and surrender. But it begins with our relationship with the Father. It begins with, with asking God and, and doing all that we can in our power to let God make us holy people. And the reality of that is that most of the time, the idea of holiness and the, and the ability for us to be ready for God to make us holy people is going to bring us back to the spiritual disciplines. Disciplines of prayer, and reading of scripture, and solitude, and community. And you know, when, when, when death, the reality of death comes at us, when we think to ourselves, I don't have a lot of time, the most natural response is to say, I've got to do everything I can. The truth is, before we do everything we can, God wants us to be everything he created us to be. And the spiritual disciplines, spending time in prayer and the reading of God's word and in solitude and in being community, the spiritual disciplines are never wasted. It's never wasted time. Because through the spiritual disciplines, we are opening our lives and our hearts to let the Spirit change us and transform us and speak into our lives. And that gives us the power that we need to then be the kind of people in this world that God's calling us to be. People of compassion and love and mercy and truth. And of course, all of that brings us back to the realization. And we can live this way in, in the power of Christ because we know that because death is not the end for Christ, death is not the end for those who are in Christ. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, in this passage we read earlier, that if Christ is not raised, then none of us are going to be raised. But if Christ is raised from the dead, then so will those who are in him be raised from the dead. And the way we live now, in the spirit and in the power of Christ, we are making an eternal decision, not just a temporal decision. We We are engaging ourselves with the risen Christ who fills us and changes all of our priorities and our perspectives about how we live now. Because coming to grips with the reality of death is not just about... It's not just about death. It's about living. It's about living with purpose and meaning. About shaping our lives and living our lives in the context of eternity. That what we do now is about the kingdom of God, not just on earth now, but for all of eternity. And it changes our priorities it changes what's important to us. It changes how we spend our time and energy and what we value, how we live. Now, as I was pondering this this whole idea of living and, and death and how death impinges on how we live, I, I thought back to the scene that Mark Twain writes In Tom Sawyer. It's a scene in which uh, the the whole town believes that Tom is dead. And he comes back to town to tell them he's not dead, but then he realizes that they're preparing a funeral service for him. And he thinks it might be kind of interesting to attend his own funeral. And so he and and Huck and some friends, they climb up in the balcony where no one can see them, and, and they listen as this funeral service takes place. And what is so interesting is that in the service for these rascally boys, no one can end, no one can say enough nice things about them. You know, they they just keep, the, the minister who has to punish Tom every Sunday in Sunday school now describes him as a boy with the sweetest, generous nature he's ever seen in his life. And it got me to thinking. When the day comes and people stand in front of our casket, they gather for our service, what are they going to say about us? Are they going to have to do all kinds of mental and verbal gymnastics in order to be kind? Are they going to have to sort of Tom Sawyer us? Or will the words of kindness and and the impressions of our lives just naturally flow as they talk about people who lived holy lives, who lived with godly purpose and meaning and significance, maybe even people who inspired them in the way they live. You and I probably are never going to be placed in a position where we are going to change the whole world. But what about our world? The places where God leads us and calls us. Our family, our friends, where we work, where we live. What kind of influence are we going to have upon them? At the end of, of the chorus of Tim McGraw's song, his dad says to him, I hope someday you have the chance to live like you were dying. I kind of think we all do. Every one of us Has the opportunity to live like we are dying. So, what are we going to do? Heavenly Father, these are hard things for us to think about. I don't really like to think about them. But we know it's true. Father, our desire is that we would be so filled with your spirit that we would live a life that reflects you. A life where we are not paralyzed by the fear of death. But motivated by the reality of death. Father, this morning we ask for your help. We ask for your grace. And we pray this through Jesus. Amen. I'm going to ask you to do something this week. It, it might it might feel a little bit morbid but i think it has value i want to ask you to take I don't know half an hour an hour whatever it takes to sit down this week and think about write down what you would like people to say about you at your funeral what would you lo- what would you hope people would say about you at your funeral And then take that piece of paper and ask God to give you the grace to live in such a way that that's exactly what happens. As we close the service this morning, we're going to be singing together hymn number 295. And let this be our prayer as we contemplate my life, my love, I give to thee. Please stand as we sing together.